Welcome to this episode of Stacks and Stories, the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission. On today's episode, join Tracy and Shelley as they discuss the best books they read but were not necessarily published during 2020. How well did their reading routines hold up during the pandemic? Did they find anything that they truly enjoyed? We'll discuss these questions and more, so stay tuned. Please note that the following audio has been pulled from the Best Books Read in 2020 video originally published on December 23, 2020 on the Mississippi Library Commission's YouTube channel and has been edited to better fit the podcast format. Hello and welcome. Hey, Shelly. Hey, Tracy. This is another episode of Shelf Absorbed. This is our Best of 2020 episode. I'm very excited because we're going to talk about our favorite books that we read in 2020. And we realize that best of 2020 lists are generally books that have come out in 2020. But you know what? I always say this about myself. I'm a rebel in inconsequential ways. I was going to say we're rebels and we're just going to talk about what we loved and read in 2020, whether it's published in 2020 or it's published in 1973. Yes. Or 77, which is or, one of my picks. <laughs> or 1977. Right. Yeah. Well, do you want to start? Do you want me to start? or what do you um, I'll, I'll go ahead and start. I like okay. to start. One of my picks, and I just read this um, a couple weeks ago, but it stood out. Florence Adler Swims Forever, mm-hmm. and it's by Rachel Beanland, which I love that last name, Beanland. And it is the story of the Adler family, and it's actually based on a true story. So it's set in 1934 in Atlantic City. Now, you know right away that Florence, it's, it's about, about this family. Well, let me just give you the setup before I tell you what happens. Um, it's about this family, and they always rent their house out to people who come to vacation in the summer. And so to make a little extra money. And then they all move into the apartment above their bakery. So, you know, they're all scrunched in. So Florence, who is away at college, she um, comes back for the summer and she's actually in training to swim the English Channel. Fanny, her sister, is married and she is pregnant. This is her third pregnancy. I need to say this. She lost her child in, in her second pregnancy. They're all very nervous about this pregnancy. Okay, so right off the bat, I think in maybe chapter one, you find out that Florence comes back. She decides to go for a little practice swim in the ocean and she drowns and dies. Yes. Wow. (laughs) So that kind of, it's abrupt and tragic. But here's the thing. Fanny, her sister, was not there because Fanny is on bed rest for this, this very tenuous pregnancy. So the family decides, and this is kind of strange, that they're not going to tell Fanny that Florence has died, that they're going to wait until she has the baby and then tell her. Now, this is kind of strange, and you're wondering how they're going to pull it off, and pull it off they do, and it takes a lot of lying on the part of everybody. Fanny has a daughter, her first pregnancy, uh, her daughter's name is Gussie, and Gussie's in on it. It's one of those books where each chapter is told by a different member of the family, which I loved. I love love books like that. I love that because you get to, you get to experience what exactly, how each family member experiences this lie and how they deal with it and how they feel about what's going on. I also really enjoyed this book because you get to see how this is a Jewish family, I need to say, and you get to see how Jewish people are treated in the United States in the 1930s. And they are still not welcome in a lot of places. There's a lot of prejudice. So that's very eye-opening to have to um, experience. It's a very layered story that's like an onion that it peels itself. Mm-hmm. 
what I especially enjoyed is the afterword by the author where she explains what in the story was fact and what was fiction. And in her family, someone actually did die and they did keep it from a member of the family who was pregnant so she would not lose her baby, mm -hmm. which I don't know if that would happen in this day and age. I don't know if you could do I that. I don't think you could with how easy it is to get a hold of someone 24 hours a day. Yeah. Someone would have to like pretend to be her and text, but, but then there's like social media too. Like I think with our technology, it was yeah. very difficult. If you would but, just FaceTime. Was yeah. Yeah, there, it would be hard to think of the reasons. So yeah. yeah, that was one thing. They they would have to think of all these reasons why Florence could not come and visit Fanny in the hospital. I just I just love the whole family component of this. It was just very a very compelling story. So I like it, and I like the title too. Yeah, yeah, and it's a beautiful like watercolor cover. <laughs> I just loved it. I just. Just so, I mean, you would think it'd be a sad story, but it's not. It's not a sad story at all. But that's how this family comes together to take care of, of the entire family mm -hmm. in light of, of this tragedy. So what do you well, have? I think that sounds good. And I, I want to read it. You know, we don't always, I don't always say. We don't always agree. But that sounds really good. I have. This is, this is the one that was published in 1977. This is A Way of Life Like Any Other by Darcy O'Brien. So kind of like what you were saying about, about your book, this, people don't really know what to call this. Is it an autobiographical novel or is it a fictionalized memoir? So the author, Darcy O'Brien, his parents were silent movie stars. George O'Brien and Marguerite Churchill were their names. And so by the time he's born, talkies have come in. Let's see when he's born, uh, 1939. Obviously there's talkies, but they are no longer relevant. And so when his, his early childhood is spent, and I'm just saying his meaning the character and the guy, because they're all kind of mashed up together. Yeah. His very early life is like very opulent and, you know, they have servants and they're like the opening scene, a bee stings this boy on the bottom and all of these people come to take care of him. And it's just like this opulence and like, and care, and then things start to fall apart. So it's not just that they lose their money. It's that both of his parents are unwell in various ways. His mother is histrionic and manipulative and does things like she, she barely scratches at her wrists and then says, look, your mother is dying. Trying to get attention. Yeah. So he reaches for the telephone. She's like, no, no, don't call anyone. And he was like, cool. Can I get you? And can I get you some aspirin? She's like, oh, I took so many pills. I, and he's like, what? Anyway. And then his That's father. Very just, difficult. That's yes. a difficult relationship to yes. deal with. And then the father is just like sinking deeper and deeper into a depression. The mother leaves him. She marries this hilarious artist. Anyway, so this does not sound like an uplifting read. No, it does not. But it is told in a very hilarious, it's not like he's not trying to make it like madcap adventures of these terrible parents, but the insane choices of the super rich. My second pick also has, has this in it, but seeing the ways that people with a lot of money choose to spend it and become accustomed. The mother liked to have these, she called, I think they were called like alfresco parties, but they weren't actually outside. She had grass replica carpet inside the house. Like, and it was so, it wasn't like AstroTurf. It, it really looked like grass. And so if someone came in with a dog, they'd have to say, oh, you need to take your dog outside because the dogs would think it was real grass and would pee on it. So she Why had not a, just have an alfresco party outside? I guess bugs, you know, <laughs> temperature, I don't know. But anyway, uh, it, it, I did not know what I was getting into when I started this book, but, you know, it's a coming of age story as he grows up and actually becomes like a normal human. What is uh, it called again? I it's called it. A Way of Life Like Any Other. 
Hmm, I like that title. Yeah. And, and, and the title kind of, you know, he's like, well, this is what I got, uh, you know, raised by these people who have some kind of issues, but yeah, no, it, it's, I laughed out loud in several spots and I am not a book laugher person. Like, yeah, I'm not either. It's I mean, I'll be like, me oh my gosh, this is, this is so funny, but uh, I, I hardly ever laugh. And, and there were several moments that were just ridiculous enough to make me laugh. So I don't know if I will read that book. Yeah, you know what? It's kind of a hard sell. Yeah, (laughs) I'm not. It sounds amusing, but um, yeah, it's not really my kind of book. No, it's it's fine. What time in the year did you read this? I'm curious. I read this in, I think I read it in January. Okay, at the very beginning. Yeah, I had read Fierce Attachments by Vivian Gornick, Uh which is a a memoir, which war. I don't know how to say that word anymore um, hard. about her relationship with her mother. And her mother is also not to this extent. She doesn't have fake grass carpet, but yeah. she is very dramatic and very overbearing. And so I read that, which is a memoir. And then I immediately read this and they just, they complimented. Yeah, they do kind of go so well. And I think being somewhat removed, this being fiction made it a little easier to stomach even yeah. though it's probably mostly true, but yeah, no, Vivian Gornick, Fierce Attachments, it's, it's a great mother-daughter memoir. I might write that down and check that one out. So. Okay, you ready for my next one? I am. Okay, it's a, it was a super popular book this year. I have not talked about it yet, called The Vanishing Half ah. by Britt Bennett. I checked this out and then did not read it and returned it. Well, it's interesting. I only read it. Okay. I, I knew it was really popular and I tried to read this author's previous book called the mothers. Yes. I loved the mothers. Okay. I didn't like it and I couldn't read it and I DNF'd it. So when this came out, I was like, "Mm, I know everybody likes it. And that usually is not, a good thing to me. Like I'm kind of a, a rebel with that. If everybody likes a book, I'm kind of like, mm, I'm not going to like it. Mm-hmm. But a really good, good reads friend of mine who we usually really like each other. You know how you and I don't like each other's good reads. She and I almost always like each other's stuff. She, mm-hmm. she raved about it. And then we were corresponding through Goodreads text. And she was like, have you read The Vanishing Half? I think you'd really like it. And I said, well, Barbara, because you said that, you know, because I really valued her opinion. I said, I'll, I'll give it a shot. So it actually won. There's these Goodreads awards. It won the 2020 Goodreads Best Historical Fiction. Oh, wow. I know. I don't really think it's... Has, it's just set in like I, the 60s or 50s, right? Yeah. Well, it starts in the 50s and it goes in the 1990s. So I guess, I mean, it is historical, but I mean, it should win an award, but didn't really feel historical to me, even though technically it is. So, but it's really good. So here's what it's about. Maybe if you're like 20. I guess, I guess because I'm not 20. When, when I think about this book, I don't think historical fiction, you know, Mm -hmm. to me, historical fiction is like the 1850s, the 1900s, not 1950 to 1990, but I am not a spring chicken and that's okay. That's all right. So this is the story of Stella and Desiree Beans and they are twins and they are brought up in the, uh, so I think they're born in the 1950s in this small town of Mallard, Louisiana. Um, And it is way, it's a very unique small town it's a very unique town. It's where everyone that lives there, they're all very light-skinned Black people, like very, very light. And it's almost like it's, they start out light-skinned and it becomes, because they have, the people in the town almost have a prejudice against people who are darker-skinned Black people, that the town 
the town becomes lighter and lighter through generations because they only intermingle with people that are light. In fact, I have a quote that I wrote down. It's said, and it's very short. In Mallard, nobody married dark. Yes, so there's a lot of, there's prejudice among the, the blacks about how they view, you know, different shades of, of their own skin. And then there's prejudice with the white people in the surrounding areas who a lot of the black community in Mallard, they're not wealthy people. So they, they still have this stand, they, they still have this way of life where they still like work for the white people, like clean their houses and that, that whole thing. But anyway, it's a very unique community. Um, so we meet Stella and Desiree and their father actually, he has a run-in with some white people and tragedy strikes and he's pulled out of his house one night and he is actually lynched. Mm. But, I mean, this all happens right off. They don't go into great detail. So Stella and Desiree, because of finances, so it's just them and their mother, they have to leave school and they have to start working. So they have to start cleaning a house for this really rich white family. And they hate it. They're, they're 16 at the time. And so they decide that they are going to leave town. And you find this out, right? Like I said, right at the first couple chapters. Yeah, I, I read, I think I read the first chapter. Okay. Did you find that out right at the beginning? Do you remember? Well, it, the first chapter is about how one of them is coming back or came back or something. So yeah. that would, that would imply that they left. Yes. So <laughs> they leave in the middle of the night and they go to New Orleans and they are there for a very short time together when Stella decides that she is going to move away from her sister Desiree and Stella decides that she's going to go off and live as a white person. She's going to what they call pass as a white person and Desiree does the opposite. She moves to DC and she becomes this secretary. She becomes some, some type of typesetter, I believe. She has a really interesting job. I just can't remember what exactly it entails right now. But, and then she meets this really nice, at first, this nice attorney. And he's a very dark-skinned black man. And I believe in the book, they said she found the darkest-skinned black man she could find. <laughs> and so they get married and they have a child together and her name is Jude. And I don't want to give everything about the book, but the marriage does not go well. He becomes violent. So Desiree returns to Mallard. Maybe that was the part that they yes. alluded to. I do remember now that because I didn't get into the whole history of Mallard and that everyone there is uh, light-skinned, mm -hmm. that they are remarking upon the color of the yes. child. When yeah. she comes back and she has Jude, Jude, you know, a product of Desiree and her very dark father is a very dark skinned child. And they're like, who is Desiree with? Who is this person that could not be her child? They can't believe that that could be her daughter. And so there's a lot of prejudice against Desiree's child because she had this offspring who is not light-skinned. So there's such, there's prejudice on so many different levels. And then there's a whole, there's this mystery about Stella. You think, well, what happened to her? Well, we, we actually do find out. She marries a white man, this very affluent white man, and she worries her entire life about passing and are they going to find out? And she has a, a child, a daughter named Kennedy, and um, they live in a very upper class white neighborhood. And then one day a black family moves in and that's where her, 
past kind of catches up with her. I'm going to skip some things because I don't want to. I'm invested. I'm going to go check it out. Okay. I don't want to tell you everything, but I'm just going to say that the daughters do find each other. The. Yeah. The cousin. The cousins. Yeah. Thank you. And what, and that's all I, I want to say here. But what I loved about this book, there's so many things I loved about it, is that there's no, like the author doesn't give, there's no judgment on the choices people make in their lives. It's just that people make different choices and they have to live with the consequences of those choices. I also love the dynamics of the mothers and their daughters they're very complex and they're very layered and they're not all happy and great but I just I loved seeing those and seeing them change through the years this book is I'm so glad I read it I'm so glad for so many reasons well because I liked the mothers you know sometimes a book just doesn't hit you right when you when you start it's not the right well, time. yeah and you have to wait until the appropriate time yeah. this this is enough to get me to pick up uh, the vanishing half again because okay. I, I i you know enjoyed and her then work. i really didn't think about it till i started preparing for this for this episode but i mean it should have hit me like the vanishing half really means like the two twins mm-hmm. were like half of each other and they when they split up one they you know part of them vanished i mean it's such a great title it is a good title i know, you know the fact that desiree is the one who has the dark-skinned child it reminds me of there's a kate chopin story uh-huh. uh, she's a you know i think it was published in like 1905 or 1893 or something it's called desiree's baby and oh. it's about this girl who is a a foundling like she's just a baby someone found somewhere and this couple adopt her and they're very wealthy and she ends up marrying this very wealthy planter guy you know this is set in louisiana which is also why i'm like uh-huh. i wonder if desiree's baby is something that influenced her so they have a child and her husband is away well uh, when no, no no he wasn't away he was born the child was born and then the the guy goes away on a trip or something and when he comes back, he's like, what is this baby? Yeah. This is not the same baby. And while the baby looked white when it was born, it has gotten darker as time went on, which I used to teach this story. And my students told me this is something that happens in, with. I have heard that too. Yes. I have heard that same thing. I didn't know. So- and- you know, white people, there's a lot we don't know. We don't know we, a lot of things. There's so many things. The yes. black culture. It is shameful, um, but I'm grateful that my students. We shouldn't be ashamed. I mean, you know, we don't know because we, you know, it's something that's not something we experience. But well, that has so many parallels to this book. It, well, and this that's is the crazy. big twist at the end. So Armand or whatever is like, banishes her and her child and he's like you get out so Desiree walks out in her white nightgown into the swamp with her baby and they're never seen again meanwhile he goes and burns everything and like burns the baby's clothes and the dresser and in the back of the dresser like he never really knew his mother she lived in Paris or whatever there's a letter from his mother to his father that says like I hope our son never knows that his mother is a black person. So it wasn't Desiree who had the black ancestry. It was Armand. Anyway, I want to read that book. It's it's just a short story. I want to read that short story. Well, it's probably on the internet somewhere and Google it up. Now that I've spoiled the ending for you. I wonder if this author, Britt Bennett knows about that. I bet she does. Yeah. Only because it is such a, if you teach college English, if you if comp one and two, yeah. oh, Desiree's baby, it's up in there. Kate Chopin is a great, she packs a punch, stories are short, bam, ending, always. So anyway. That, you know, I don't think I've ever read anything by her. 
but sounds like I would like her. The Awakening is her big book, but the short That's the only one I know about from her. That's the, the only stories one are good. There, yeah. There's one called The Story of an Hour that's maybe two pages long that Ooh. I, it's, it's a great one, but. I like a short story. Okay. Well, you've sold me on those. Okay. So this, my, this, I think this is my favorite book of this year. I've always thought about reading it and I never have. So this is The Ghosts of Eden Park by Karen Abbott. Um, I, I have only one quibble with this book and it's the title. Okay. I do not think this is an apt title. It also, the subtitle is The Bootleg King. Yes. The Women Who Pursued Him. What? And The Murder That Shocked Jazz Age America. The Women Who Pursued. Anyway, someone else besides the author must have written that, that subtitle. But so this is the story of George Remus, who was basically the best bootlegger ever. He's a very smart, very shrewd, very corrupt human. He's, he starts out as a pharmacist. Actually, I think he's a fake pharmacist, but whatever. He becomes an attorney. And then when Prohibition started, he saw an opportunity. So the one way you could still buy and sell liquor is if you were a pharmacy. And you could prescribe alcohol for medicinal oh, purposes. I see. Yeah. Yeah. You could still, uh, if, if you were a pharmacy, you could, you, you had to buy some so you could prescribe it. Or sorry if I just bumped that. So what this guy did was he, he bought a pharmacy and he, and he stocked it full of the stuff pharmacies have. He spent $40,000 doing this. And then he bought all the alcohol he could get as this pharmacy. Then he closed that pharmacy and he moved that $40,000 worth of stuff and supplies to another building, opened a new pharmacy, and basically amassed all of this alcohol. And by the end of whatever the first year was, 1919, uh-huh. he, he owned 30% of all the alcohol in America. Wow. In less than a year. Just by like opening these fake chains? Yes. Pharmacy chains? Yes. So... He's brilliant at being bad, you know? So anyway, so it's all about his rise and fall. And so the U.S. Attorney General's office has a new position that is, you know, regulating prohibition. And the woman in charge of it, and it's very exciting because it's a, a female assistant attorney general. Her name is Mabel Willebrandt. And I like that name. So that's the, you know, the woman who pursued him. She's yeah. one of the the women. So the book goes back and forth between what George Remus is doing and how Mabel is trying to thwart him and whatever. So it's a great story anyway. But like I was saying, the insane choices of the super rich are fascinating. So I think that's a theme you really are drawn to. Yes. But basically it's it's like watching real housewives of whatever and seeing how the dumb choices that rich people make, you yeah, know, yeah. and what they spend their money on. I find it very fascinating as a non-rich person. So this, this one New Year's Eve party, it, this says everything about his lifestyle. So he, he bought this mansion and every single thing in it, he filled it with like, I don't know, opulent everything. He collected art. He, anyway, he has all this stuff everywhere. But so anyway, he marries this woman named Imogene. So this is the 1921 New Year's Eve party. So there were about a hundred guests there and they all sit down to dinner, you know, a hundred people for dinner. It's normal, right? Well, yeah, as you do. Right. And this guy is like, oh my gosh, there's a thousand dollar bill under my plate. Oh, he's the big winner. And then everyone else moves their plate. Everyone has a thousand dollar bill under their dinner plate. This is 21. There is a thousand dollar bill. Apparently there was a 1921 and I did Google to see the equivalency to see how much a thousand dollars was really worth. And I can't remember now, but I, I, $7,000, 12,000, something like that. But like a thousand dollars would like, I'm not saying it would change my life, but it would definitely improve my life. And it would improve my life. Yeah. Yeah. So a hundred years ago though, you can only imagine. Okay. So then Women dressed as Greek goddesses present each man after dinner with gifts. And they are given a diamond stick pin and a gold watch that is engraved like 
love George and Imogene or whatever. And all, all the women were like, oh, that's nice. Then the women all receive a set of keys and they go outside and they all get a 1922 Pontiac. <laughs> he bought cars for all of the women coming to this party. Plus everyone got a thousand dollars plus the gold stick pin and the, and the watch and a car and a car, a car for all the women. Then synchronized swimmers were involved in the pool. And then he got in the pool. George got in the pool with his tuxedo on. And then he was like, he was done with New Year's Eve. He went back to his study and he ate a, a, a plate of cold, cold boiled ham, which is what he liked to eat after he, a swim. And he read a, a, a biography of Abraham Lincoln and just called it a night. That's the kind of party I won't be invited to. Exactly. Exactly. How do I get on this? I think you have to be like a terrible person, basically, though, to hang out with George Remus to begin with. I might be okay with that. So he he eventually gets caught for various things, right? And he's sent to federal prison in Atlanta. And fortunately, this federal prison has what they call Millionaire's Row. So all the super rich, corrupt people kind of hang in the same wing, you know, so they don't have to mix with the riffraff. And it's not even like bribery is, is too bad a word. You just, they have like a fee system. It's like ordering a hamburger for this amount. We will let you bring in your own mattress and sheets and a refrigerator. You can also pay to eat dinner separately from the rest of the people with white linen tablecloth and everything. His wife came in every single day to visit him and brought him like cakes and chickens and would clean his cell for him. (laughs) These were clearly um, different times. Yes. So to, but to, so I'm fascinated with all the tiny details about, you know, the stuff, but, but generally while he is in prison, Imogene has been pursued by this federal agent who worked for Mabel uh, Willebrand named Franklin Dodge. And so they start an affair and then she decides to leave George, but not before like destroying everything. She takes every single thing out of the house, like the banisters, every, everything is gone. So when he gets out of prison, he has nothing. Anyway, then he kills her. The day of their divorce trial is supposed to happen. And she was in a cab right in front of him and she was laughing and he was like, "Mm -mm, nope. So he shoots her and she dies. And then he goes to trial for that. I'm writing this book down on my list to read. Anyway, it, it, and it's not a, it's not a spoiler that he kills her because that we, we, that's the first chapter. So we know that this is always something that's going to happen as we're reading. But listen, it was a wild ride. It was wild. I loved it. How many pages is that book? It looks like a hefty. And there's a lot of end notes. Okay. 319 pages. Oh, that's not. It just looks bigger. Yeah. And this author also wrote, and I haven't read it yet, um, Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy, about four women undercover in the Civil War. And I tried listening to this, except oh. the ver- the audiobook I was listening to read every footnote as it happened. Oh, no. Oh, uh-huh. no. Mm-hmm. No, no. No, you can't no. do that. In I audio. cannot. Uh-huh. I, so I, I forget what we were even talking about. Like, yeah. by the time the footnote's yeah. over. That's you know. not a good, no. Yes, but I'm looking forward to reading that. Yeah. Well, that's a good book. That's crazy. Well, I would like to take you to my last book, which came out in 2019, not 2020. And I've actually, this is the only book that I have discussed on Shelf Absorbed, but I love it so much. The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna. It's very shiny. It is shiny. By Juliet Grains. I realized that of all of all three well all three books not of all three all three books that i loved this year they're all about families like all into the families i don't know what that says but 
in this book, I saw an interview with the author. It's really based largely on her fam on her own family. Hmm. So I'll, I'll tell you again about this book because I love it so much. So there's there's actually two skeletons, and and this it's funny because you go from this opulent, rich family of the you know with all this you know thousand dollar bills, and I'm going to 1919 into a a poor rural um, Italian village. Yeah, okay. they, they do not have the thousand dollar bills under the. No, I don't know if they have five dollar bills, but anyway, so the first Stella is born and she dies in child. And so then they have another child and of course they name her Stella. Yeah. She survives and she, as she grows up, she has many brushes with death. And the second Stella, who's the one that the book is about mainly, is she's convinced that all these brushes with death is the ghost of her namesake trying to kill her hmm. which i think i think that's kind of cool this book is very i don't want to say fairy tale but it's like kind of like it's told like a folk tale type way i think that's why i like it so much and magical realism sort of i would say which i i think i'm really into that this year and i think a lot of that is because of 2020 being what it is right the escapism Yes. So I'm really drawn to that. So Stella has all these strange brushes with death. You know, she, she almost drowns. That's a, a usual one. There's also one brush with death where she's almost killed by, I think she eats like some type of papaya or something. It's, it's something or an olive, something like an olive tries to kill her. I don't know. It, it's very strange. But so this spans, like I said, it, it starts out in 1919 and it, it spans to present death. But I think one of the other things I, lo I love about this book, okay, so it starts out in this rural village in Italy, but then they come over to America and it's really all, it's about the entire family. And it's this very traditional tight knit Italian family but with that, you get a lot of male dominance in the family. So it's very, it's very difficult sometimes to see the females in the family have to curtail to the men and their wishes. I don't know how to tell you say that. Mm -hmm. it, it, it would frustrate me a lot as a woman in 2020. But I had to keep telling myself that it was a different time and it's a different culture, mm -hmm. but I really loved the relationship between Stella and her sister, Tina. They have this really love hate relationship, but they're always there for each other through some really tough times. Some really horrible things happen, but it actually at the end of the book, not giving anything away, but, like, you know, there are these two old women who are just kind of like, oh, yeah, life, life's been hard. I've been through some hard stuff, you know, and I just love, I just love that. I just love that. It's just, I don't know. The, you know, I don't like to reread, but as, again, as I was preparing for this and I was kind of flipping through this book, I was thinking, I'm going to have to read this again. I just, and that's so unusual for me. This is just, you know, it's not only one of my favorite picks for 2020. This is just one of my favorite books. You know what? I think I would, I have, what was your first one? Florence Adler's uh, oh, yeah. Swims Forever. Well, I have checked out the seven or eight deaths of Stella Fortuna and the Vanishing Half and then just didn't get around to reading them. Hey, you know what? We work in libraries. So it'll come back one day. Yeah. I mean, whenever you're in the mood, the only thing about Stella Fortuna, it's 460 pages. It's kind of, it's kind of dense. It's a, it's a sweeping folk tale. I do like, I, I, I like when I'm in the mood for it. I like a good sprawling, let huge long book that you can just really enjoy like that. Yeah. The male dominance thing is, is a slight 
segue (laughs) into my last pick or best book of 2020. And it was actually published this year. This is Rodham. I have wanted to read that. Curtis Sittenfeld. So this is not, it, it is a novel. It is not a biography of Hillary Clinton. So Curtis Sittenfeld has done this before where she kind of writes a fake biographical novel about someone in American Wife. She retells the story of Laura Bush's life. She doesn't, her character is not named Laura Bush, but it's clearly Laura Bush. It's clearly George Bush that she marries. You know, she has twins, like the whole, the whole nine yards. And it's this really interesting and compelling way of, even if she's making it up, getting to know a public figure through like, cause she uses the facts and then, you know, embellishes them because it's a novel. She can do what she wants. So in this one though, the whole premise is that Hillary, she does meet Bill. They date. He asks her to marry him. And she says, no, she does not marry Bill. And what would her life have been if she stayed Hillary Rodham and she didn't become Hillary Clinton? So as her career Uh, you know, rises and his career, they zigzag, they come like they, I mean, it's not a spoiler. Like they don't get married after they break up the way that their careers cross is really fascinating seeing like in, in a way I found it like extremely sad that, you know, she, she loves Bill very much, but there are issues with Bill. So again, the author takes these things that we know about a public figure Mm-hmm. And then uses those things to elaborate and tell a story. So things that we know or think we know about Bill Clinton being uh, a philanderer, being, you know, being that way. Well, she really ramps that up like that. So, so it's not like Bill Clinton is an alien and here's all this <laughs> new stuff. It's, it's stuff that like we know enough about it. So it makes sense. And then uh-huh. she's picking up the details about about all the other things. So all the main players are still involved, except for Chelsea. Obviously, she does not get born as they do not marry. Yeah. But just taking that public perception of a of a person and then creating this evidence or explanation for it. Donald Trump is in this book. <gasps> really? Um, he is. He is. Not in exactly the same way as in actual 2016. But for a minute there, I was like, oh my, what's don't, don't write this book about this alternate reality and then give me exactly. <laughs> Please the, don't do that. Please. Well, you know, the whole point of it is that something else happens. No yeah. matter what your political affiliation is, this is yeah. really just a book about like, well, what if? So yeah. I didn't want the same thing to happen. Yeah, you don't um, want to relive what has happened. Right. It was, uh, let, let's see, with, with a few details slightly askew. And really, I don't know if you've read anything by Ian McEwen. Have you ever read anything uh-huh. like I love him. And in this book, her life changes when she doesn't marry Bill Clinton. And that's a major decision. But in Ian McEwan books, it's always this super tiny thing and it changes everything. It's, so it's is, always this, it's a very small detail. Yeah. A very small decision. Mm-hmm. And then your entire life changes. But, you know, I think that that is probably how things most likely or most usually work like we don't realize they're big decisions when I find that scary but I think that's really true yeah that's really how life so but in this one it's like well this this thing I made this decision and then this is all the stuff that happened because of it do you think Hillary in the book maybe you don't want to say but or you can't say but do you think she had a better life in the book than in reality or just a different life I think she had a different life I think in some ways her life in this book is more fulfilling. She obviously has been able to achieve many more things career-wise without being the wife of someone else. So as as her career rises, it's for her work, not, you know what I mean? Like, and she's accountable for herself, not this other person, which which is what happens when you run for president and your husband used to be president, you know? You have to so, answer to what that other person did. Right. And, and you answer did. to everything bad he ever did, yeah. even if it had nothing to do with you. So yeah, in some ways it is, it, it's a real, and again, I don't want it to be about politics because it's really not. It's really yeah. just a story of a woman who makes a, a, a different choice than the one that we 
we know her to have made in real life. But like American Wife, you know, that one is about a Republican. This one is about a Democrat. I think, I think the author just finds these women really compelling and interesting. And it's not about politics, really. I would so just I love that. to know what Hillary thinks about this book. Wouldn't well, that be neat to know? I will tell you this. So her relationship with Bill is very steamy. <laughs> there are some extremely steamy, don't read this if you are not, if you're not, a, you're not you don't want to read about some, some sex times. Don't, don't read it. Beans. Yeah. And those are the parts when I was reading and I was like, oh my God, what if Hillary is reading this and what, what she thinks of it from that yeah. perspective? Like, was it accurate? But also <laughs> American Wife, it has some like super steamy scenes too. And like, you know, obviously like Bill Clinton has a reputation. And so we have like collectively as a country, we have considered his sex life. Like, even yeah. if we haven't thought about it too deeply we know he has one yeah whereas George Bush is not a person I think of as having he hasn't yet his sex life has not been brought to our right yeah we have not had to think about it yes he has daughters and that's about the extent of his that anyway so both books have you know that they really even though even though they are novels even though they are fake they really make these people into real people instead of public figures so Anyway, it was great. And I hadn't read, like when we've talked about this in several other episodes, I hit a slump and I couldn't read and coronavirus was getting me down. And, but this book, it brought, it brought me back and I read it in like two days. Really? Wow. And I had to keep telling my boyfriend, I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, now she's doing (laughs) this and that. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. You know, so it. Well, I I wanted, I checked it out and then didn't read it and brought it back. Yeah, it, it just, I just wasn't, you know, I had a lot of other stuff, you know, on my nightstand. So I'll have to check it out again. I mean, look, just read until they break up for the sex parts. If okay. <laughs> <laughs> I will now. Yeah, they're good. Anyway, so that that's, that's my 2020. I think we, so I'm curious. I know that you keep up, you, you know, we've talked about Goodreads before. How, what, what, how many books have you read this year? Do you think? Well, I've read 158 books. That's a lot of books. But can I caveat several of them were short stories? Oh, well, that's that, those so, five Mindy Kaling stories. I not, know, I, but I counted that. those, and that's like six. Those are yeah, like, but okay, so you're down to 152. 52. Yeah. But, but you know, you know me, like a lot, like 70% of my books are audiobooks. And I know that's still reading, but so when people are always like, oh, you read so much. I mean, I do read a lot, but the only way I can read so much is because I listen to so many books. So. I have not told you that I have a new way. Audiobooks and I have, we have become friends. Well, I'm glad to hear that because you haven't always been friends. I haven't. And I still get very annoyed by people's voices, but if a book is difficult for me at the beginning, because sometimes it just doesn't grab me, I will listen to a couple of chapters. Then I'm, then I'm into it and I can get the print version and, and read it. And so the, the ghosts of Eden park, I read, I'd listened to the first chapter in the car and then I got to where I was going and I read. So every time I was getting back in the car, like for more than five seconds, I'd make sure I was at the end of a chapter so I could go and find that chapter so I, I went back and forth for the whole book. So it, it, it worked well, out. Well, I will give you, I don't know if this will help, but sometimes like when you start to listen to a book and the narrator, like you're just like, oh, that doesn't mean you won't get used to them. Mm-hmm. Like the Queen's gam- Gambit, I, I always want to say Gambit. Gambit, I think you said that you didn't like that narrator. Yeah, I didn't. So I did listen to that book and I didn't like her first but the story was so good that I eventually could adapt to her voice so sometimes if the narration's not like wonderful you can if you kind of stick with it 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 may not bother you so much so sometimes it's just horrible and there's no way there's no way but sometimes if it's just kind of like, eh, that's not super great. The narrator of, we, we read Rebecca for our book, work book club. 
she sounded like she was like 900 years old and in a very cold room 500 yards away but I ended up loving it because it it was like this atmospheric thing yeah it it fit the novel it did yeah I think it was just like an old recording and but anyway so did you meet your Goodreads goal well here's the thing I I always make it 50 and I always make it, always meet it. But this year has been weird and it was really stressing me out, even though no one cares if I meet my Goodreads goal. And you can change your goal. Well, see, I didn't know that. So I you know it, it now. I changed it to 30 and I'm at 31. And I'm, um, I found a little, have you read the Maisie Dobbs books? I tried. I, I tried the first one. I didn't like it. I want to because the covers are so cute. Yeah, they but are. I just, not right now. Well, I'm on the second one and it's delightful and I'm enjoying it. So anyway, I, we've got a few more weeks to go in 2020. So I might make it to, I, I might make it to 130, 158. Here's the thing, Tracy, the Goodreads police are not going to come get you. I know. I know. And And sometimes, you know, things like logically and then emotionally like, but I I didn't meet the goal. Yeah, I know. And it's good to have a personal goal. It is. It is good. But I I have changed my Goodreads goals like every year. I, I change them. So Well, I, I never saw that edit button until you told me it was there. Well, so. now you know. Yes. It I is gold it is golden. It is. Well, talking about books this year has been fun and I can't yeah. wait to record some more shelf absorbed in twenty twenty one. A lot of fun. I hope people are, are enjoying it. Yeah, see what our new new year will bring us in our reading. Yeah, I wonder what 2021 will bring. Maybe $1,000 under a plate. <laughs> or 7000 Or seven, or a, a new car at a party, oh. whatever. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Stacks and Stories, the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission. We hope you will tune in next time, and we encourage you to visit your local public library often.